morning, Sojourn. Good morning. Wonderful to be with you this morning. Welcome to Sojourn Heights. My name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here, specifically a pastor over parishes and equipping. It really is a, a joy uh, to be with you this morning. And it's a joy because I belong to you and, and you belong to me. And that's a wonderful grace from the Father. Um, especially want to thank uh, God for the temperature in the room right now. Um, for those of you who were with us last week, it was kind of like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, just, you know, the face is melting. Um, so, it helps us concentrate. Um, well, if you're, if you're joining the gathering for the first time, or maybe even the second time, I um, want to let you know, I'm just going to bring you up to speed for the past couple of weeks. We've been journeying through the book of 1 Timothy in a sermon series called The Household of God. Um, we opened the series in the first half of 1 Timothy 1 and just talked about how inside this gospel household, this household of God that he has built, um, we as his people really get to, uh, really is where our gospel identity is formed and fostered, where it begins and, and how it's shaped. Um, last week, uh, we continued in the second half of 1 Timothy 1 and talked about how the foundation of that house is grace. The grace of redemption, the grace of community, the grace of discipline. And as we continue today, what we're going to be talking about is just the building out of the structure of the house, the building out of the inside of the house. What does it look like to live inside this house, to live as the people of God in this gospel identity, founded on grace? What does that look like? And so from today's text, we see that one structure in the household of God is trust. And I don't have to tell you that trust is very important. Um, my wife, Kimberly, and I have two little girls, Abigail and Penelope, who are three and one. And something that I've noticed more and more in being a parent um, is the amount of trust that they give us. It really is staggering to me even to consider that they believe everything that we say. <laughs> um, it's really powerful. We could be out of our minds. Um, but I, I, I know that it's powerful because Abigail will sit next to me and look out the window and say, Daddy, what's that? And I'll say, that's a school bus. Um, and she trusts me. I know that I've been tempted to say other things. What is that, Daddy? It's a barracuda. <laughs> They're all yellow. They all carry children. <laughs> but... <laughs> The point is, is that they look to us to help them interpret the world. And that really is a lot of trust. When I'm swinging Abigail or Pen Penelope around, like in this sort of human tilt-a-whirl, I see the joy in their faces. They're completely unafraid. If Kimberly's there, she's thinking about nearest hospitals and memorials good for blunt trauma. And... But for Abigail and Penny, I, I know they're not worried or afraid or discontent. Trust gives way to so much life for them. And I see in them real rest, real joy, real peace, a quietness of soul. And they're tangible evidence that it is wonderfully freeing to trust. And I know that we want that too. We're not different than Abigail and Penelope. We want that too. To set our trust in something or in someone that is firmly anchored to find something that we can put our trust in, whether it's a job or a person or a reality, because the result is that it frees us up to live 
in that peace, in that joy, in that confidence. And really, it's what Paul is encouraging us and Timothy to pass on to the church at Ephesus in this portion of the letter. This letter was written roughly 30 years after the death of Christ. And the occasion that that starts this letter is Paul knows that there's just false teaching. There is incorrect teaching that's happening in the church at Ephesus. He's mentioned that more than a few times in the opening chapter. And Paul is showing us in 1 Timothy that the gospel changes the way that we live in the everyday. Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection changes who we are and then how we live. The world will say, change how you live, and that changes who you are. That's not the gospel. So we're going to be looking at three things this morning from the text. And I'll, I'll, I'll weave through them, not necessarily letting you know when we're in those next points, but I just want to let you know that this is, these are the three things that we'll be talking about today. A call to trust. Jesus, the one who trusted. And then finally, trusting in Christ. So let's just begin in verse 1. First of all then, the then here is very important. Because what Paul is going to tell us is in light of what he already told us. First of all then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. So because of the pervasive false teaching, because people are teaching things that aren't real and true, because our aim is love and a good conscience and sincere faith, because grace and mercy are available to everyone regardless of past, I want you to do this first. I want you to pray. I want you to pray in all kinds of ways, and I want you to pray for all kinds of people, even the ones with which you may have the most contention those in power and those in places of authority, I urge you, I plead with you, pray for yourselves, pray for others, pray for one another, pray, thank God for one another, and thank God for those other people. Now, it may seem that this is not necessarily the first thing that the Ephesian church should do. The people of Ephesus were caught in lies, myths, discussions of self, and these genealogies of, well, where does your family come from? And are you of good stock? And does your, well, who is your father? And incorrect teaching. And Paul says that, that what they were attempting to do is to construct something to put their trust in. Where can we find a place where we can anchor our trust to say, I'm okay, or I'm going to end up in heaven, or I'm, I have a good life because of this thing. Paul says that all of that, all those myths and lies and, and vain discussions, it just leads to speculation of this might be true. Well, it might be this. Forming an idea around something for which we have no evidence. And so Paul's saying this is a dire situation. People are looking for truth and they're looking for it in the wrong place. Pray for them. Why? Verse 3. This is good. It's good to do this. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why pray? Because God wants people to come to the knowledge of what's true. That he, God our Savior, very important, that term, came to save us by sending his son Jesus. And the revealing of truth and the saving of people belong to God. Salvation is his. He is the authority. He is the one who saves. Paul says, tell everyone to pray for all the people who are caught in this cloud of myth and lie 
that they might come to know the truth and trust the God who will save them. And we're asking God because he's the final authority in all of existence. And Paul says, the result is this. We pray, people come to know the truth, and this is what happens. We all lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The word for quiet here is very important. It doesn't have to do with loudness. The quiet life, it's a state of contentment. It's not that we should live as hermits and just avoid one another. That's a quiet life, to not speak, to remain silent. No, quiet, that we are content, that we trust. There is a tranquility of soul. Like when I'm swinging Abby around and her face says, Daddy's got me. Paul is saying that there is something worth trusting. That's what he's saying to the church there. That's what he's saying to us now. There is something worth trusting. His call to the church at Ephesus and to us is a call to place our trust in God himself, the best, most gracious, prevailing, saving authority in all existence. To trust the gospel identity that he offers, to trust the grace that's offered in the gospel. The trust is powerful because it's something that we do by default. None of, us in here, none of us in here don't trust. Even if we were to say, I don't trust anyone and I don't trust anything, there is still trust being placed. Your trust is in your distrust. Graham Greene, an author, a wonderful author, said that to not trust is like being imprisoned in yourself, the worst cell of all solitary confinement of soul. We, we, you are all, all of us are built to place our trust in something. Whether it's job security, job enjoyment, our marriages, our friendships, our children, our health, our capacity to do, think, or feel anything, or a hypothetical future that we look out on the horizon and say, in 20 years, that's when it's going to be good. My trust and chips are there. And we find things to place our trust in and we trust that we, when we trust what we're doing is if we are entrusting ourselves to that very thing, that person or that thing. Because, this is the problem though, because we place our trust in people and things and in circumstances, our trust regularly breaks down and it can't be sustained. And none, none of those things, none of those people were ever meant to bear the weight of our trust. Most often we don't even know that we're trusting that particular thing, that particular person, until they're threatened or they're taken. And this, that scenario has happened to all of us. You lose the job and the position in which you placed your identity. Who, who, who am I now? I, I was this in this position. That's who I was. That's who I liked being. And now that's over. You find out during the first year of marriage how much trust you've placed in your spouse to be a certain person for you, and, and they've failed. You've placed so much stock in your own positive personality, but now you're fighting daily with depression. That's not who I am. That's not who I am. What's, what's happening? That's where my trust was. Or you just live day, daily, monthly, yearly in just the, the life circumstances. That's where my trust is, is 
And because, con- and because life is constantly in flux, so are you. So is your trust. So is your worry. So is your anxiety. Martin Luther said famously that the sin underneath all of our sin, the, the root sin is distrust. He said, we cannot tr- when we cannot trust the love and grace of God, we must take matters into our own hands. And that makes sense. If I can't trust the maker of all things, then it's on me. I've got to make this life work. I've got to secure some happiness in life for myself. And this sin goes back to the beginning, back to when the world began, when we rebelled against God's authority in the garden. Order and trust were disrupted because we desired to place trust in another, to dethrone God, and to take our lives into our own hands to decide what was best for us. And we still do that. Our trust is so weighty that in time or through disappointment, it crushes whatever holds it. And our trust is regularly thwarted, and it makes it impossible to do what Paul is asking. Paul is saying, trust God. And we in our humanness are standing here thinking, but I I can't. Look at the world. It's broken. There's no place to place my trust. I can't do it. But there is someone who did. Who's completely different. Completely different than humanity. Jesus was a man who consistently and repeatedly placed his trust in God the Father. And he actually accomplished what the text is asking us to do. I just listened to a few things that he said while he was alive. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. For I have not spoken on my own authority. The Father has given me the command of what to say and speak. The Father who dwells in me and does his work. I want you to listen to the amount of trust that he expresses. He says, what I have isn't mine. It belongs to the Father. Everything I'm telling you is what the Father is saying. I didn't decide to come on my own I'm not autonomous. The Father sent me. God is at work in me and through me. This is complete trust. And it's one thing, it's one thing if God, it's one thing if we just trust when things are good. Money's in the bank, job security's there, we've got a good marriage or a relationship, and we think, okay, it's easy to trust then, but what about when it gets dark? What about when none of those things are there? But see, Jesus trusted the Father willingly when it was difficult and in the midst of his greatest suffering. And I think it would be eye-opening to compare our manner of distrust with Jesus' words of trust during his darkest moments. Consider, Consider the book of Exodus when Moses leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt after 430 years of brutal slavery, of brutal living, And miraculously parts the Red Sea, leads them through, destroys their captors under the waters, and brings them into this new land. And when they get there, the first thing they say is, it would have been better if we had died in Egypt. At least we had food. 
But God, you brought us out here to starve to death. That's, that's our response. But when Jesus was led out into the desert alone, not with a band, not with a family, alone and tempted by the devil to turn rocks into bread to feed himself, he said, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I trust God for my nourishment, not just food. In the Garden of Eden, the devil offered us the chance to be like God by disobeying him, and we succumbed to that invitation which led to death and sin bleeding into existence. So in Eden, what we said was, not what you want, but what I want. So that's the Garden of Eden. Compare that to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus overwhelmed to the point of this, to, to where it felt like he was dying. Ask God if there's any other way to fulfill this. If there's any way that I don't have to die, let that happen. Three times he asked this, but he ended it with, nevertheless, your will be done. In the Garden of Eden, we said, not what you want, what I want. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, not what I want, but what you want. Even on the cross, as Jesus was suffering on the cross, the reaction from those watching was, if you're the son of God, save yourself. Come down off the cross, and then we'll believe in you. First Peter wrote it this way, that in response, Jesus did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to the judge, to him who judges justly, God the Father. See, Jesus did what we couldn't do. He trusted God in every way and entrusted him with everything that he was. So why should we pray to God? Why should we entrust our lives to him? Why can we trust him? And it's right here in the text. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. The reason that we can trust Jesus is because at infinite cost to himself, he gave himself over completely, entrusting himself to the wrath of his Father so that you and I would never know the ultimate separation from God. He trusted God in his wrath so that we could trust God in his grace. Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension proved himself to be the most trustworthy mediator between all of us and God. He submitted in the face of pain and shame and never once took matters into his own hands. That's a savior that the entire world can trust. Those who have been overlooked, they're not trusting just some person in, in, a, in a white ivory tower who's never known suffering. No, they can come to a God who knows what it's like to be overlooked, who knows what it's like to suffer. That is a God that we can follow because he trusted in the midst of greatest sorrow and humiliation. He has done what we could never do. And when Christ gave his life and ransom for ours, he proved he was worthy of our trust. 
And because in his death, he paid for our sin of rebellion. And in his resurrection, he paid for our eternal life. He purchased both of those. Your sin and your eternal life. Now by his spirit, he has placed within those of us who have trusted him, come to trust him. We can now live entrusting our lives to him. In Christ, we can be faithful to what Paul is calling us to do. Now the rest of the passage that we're going to read right now has been a source of great tension for many. Many of you have been hurt by this text. Many of you are still hurting in light of previous teaching, previous treatment at a church. And I want to be sensitive to this. I know what time it is. I want to be sensitive to this and not plow through this as if it's just understandable and acceptable right off the bat. There are a few camps that take parts of this text to an extreme. And I want to tell you at the outset that sojourn as a body, that we're going to land somewhere other than the extreme. But the wonderful thing is that the God that I just described to you is the one who wrote this word. We don't have to be, af- we don't have to be afraid. There's nothing to fear. Do you know the most consistent refrain from God to people in the, in the Bible? Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. So Paul says, I desire then. The then points back to what he just explained, which is the gospel. So he says, I was appointed to deliver this news. That God sent his son to be a ransom for all. What I'm desiring for you to do is live in the light of the reality that Christ has purchased you in full. You're not living on your own, but with one another in a household of God. And in order that we might show the, in word and deed to others what it looks like to live as a good household. This is what I want. This is what I'm asking. I desire then in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Likewise, it's very important here because Paul is saying that the heart of the change is for both genders. It's for everyone. The heart of it, the heart for change, is the same for both genders. When Paul has specific instructions for both men and women, while he does have specific instructions for both men and women, the call for all is to submit, to pray, to walk in modesty, to walk in self-control, and to carry out good works. That's for all of us. This points back to what Luther said. The sin beneath the sin is distrust. And that's what we are all tempted to do. Is to fight for identity. To distrust God. And to take matters into our own hands. So this is what Paul is saying. And guys, I I want you to hear this. As if it's being spoken, spoken directly to you. 
Men, your identity is in Christ. You have been ransomed from sin, sharing now in the inheritance of Jesus. There is nothing left to quarrel over. There is nothing left to fight over in anger. There is no need to lift our hands in anger to defend or accuse or to shout. Jesus has pleaded your case. He has fought for you. He has defended you. In light of that, raise your hands and submit to him. Plead for others to come to that freedom, the knowledge of truth that you know. Plead for others to come to that so that they would stop quarreling and fighting in vain discussion. Trust him to sustain you. Trust him to save others. There is no need to take matters into your own hands. He has already done that. He has you. And to the women, women, your identity is in Christ. You have been ransomed and share with Jesus in all that is his. All that belongs to him belongs to you. There is nothing left to do to make yourselves more acceptable, more beautiful in the eyes of God. Because clothed now in Christ, you are free to walk in humility and self-control and the works that God has prepared for you to do. Your identity is beyond your physical appearance. In Christ, you are spotless, blameless, holy, beautiful. He has already fought for you. He has already accepted you. He already delights in you. Submit to him. Plead for others. Trust him to sustain you. Trust him to save others. There is no need to take matters into your own hands. He has already done that. He has you. Now the rest of this text I want to walk, I just want to talk through a bit out of order. It may seem strange, but I'll try to be clear so that you can just follow follow my thinking. Let's jump to verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. These verses illustrate why 9 through 12 are so crucial for how we live as the household of God. Because if we read these things and think that they only apply to verses 11 and 12, then we will read 11 and 12 as if it was a punishment. And it most certainly is not. Paul is talking about what went wrong in the garden because he wants us to consider the order that God created at the beginning. See, God's order was this, very simply. Adam was given authority by God, and Eve was given as a helper. In the fall, that broke. Adam ignored his God-given authority, and Eve ignored her God-given role as a helpmate. It undid the order. This perfect order that God called, we distrusted, it broke it. And now Paul is saying, live like this. 
live like kingdom people who are living in that original order because that is where, that is what God has called us to. That is the life and light that God has called us to live in. This verse isn't just Adam was first and Eve messed up. It's too simplistic. It puts, this verse puts the weight on both of them, both of their, of their distrusts. He was not, Adam was not exercising the strong but gentle leadership role that he was entrusted with. And Eve was not exercising the trusting and submissive helpmate role that she was entrusted with. So what I see Paul doing is this, is the, he says, the reason I'm desiring for you to live this way is because it reorders the fall. It lives in light of the original order. It's a call to live in that peace, that rest, that dignity, that godliness. So with that, with those lenses looking at the, at the other part of the text, let's jump back to 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Paul is writing to the church, a church made up of men and women living together under qualified male eldership, which we will preach on next week. And the women in Ephesus, most, we would absolutely agree with this, that the women in Ephesus had limited basic rights as well as limited educational opportunities. Paul's encouragement to women to learn and grow under the oversight of local male eldership was absolutely countercultural. The let here is not weak. It's not a, yeah, let them do that. It's a directive. Women, grow, learn, mature in godliness and holiness. And do it quietly. That same word is the same word in verse 2 and in verse 12. Quietly with a contentment of soul that trusts Christ, grow, learn, study. The Greek definition of the word quietly is this, a steadiness due to divinely inspired calmness, being appropriately tranquil by not misusing or overusing words that will stir up destructive commotion. It says the same thing to men. Don't fight, don't quarrel. Women and men live quietly. Don't fight. Don't quarrel. Don't divide. Fight for unity. Fight for peace. Christ has already paid. That peace is available to us. Women and sojourn, this is for you. This is a wonderful grace to you. Know the Father. Know the Son. Know the Spirit. Learn about Him. Grow in godliness and holiness through the study of His Word and teach others to do so. Study biblical text. Study theology. Be diligent students of the Word. And ask Him to help you trust Him so that the noise of your soul is drowned out in the trust of His faithfulness. I know a lot of us have noisy souls in worry and in flux and anxiety. When we have noisy souls, when we have noisy souls, we're, we're worried about securing things for ourselves. And this is a call to rest, to rest easy. Do not be afraid. 
I'm with you. Now Paul's only parameters on this is in verse 12. Many of us have taken the words teach and exercise authority as two different words, but Paul is using a Greek phrase here called ahendiatis, which joins two words together with a conjunction so as to make them one phrase. And with that in mind, we read the words to teach or to exercise authority over a man as meaning to teach with authority over a man. In other words, authoritative teaching. Paul is not barring women from teaching and authority, but authoritative teaching. In many places throughout scripture, women are exercising gifts of prophecy, carrying out the work of the gospel alongside other men. So we need both men and women to both learn and teach. But here's where it's different. The authority inherent within the office of elder restricts eldership to men. And in keeping with the church's historic practice, the Sunday pulpit is Sojourn's primary platform for authoritative teaching. We reserve the pulpit, therefore, for elders and elders in training. Everything else outside the pulpit is open to all men and women. That includes... What this is going to look like at Sojourn is that we want to encourage all of you, men, women, to seek parish leadership, to be on panels of forums that we'll have in the future, to speak, to help us learn, to help us grow, to use your gifts, all of you. Even our equipping classes that are on the horizon. We want you in this room. We want you to be part of that. We want you to teach. We need you. We want you to, women of Sojourn, we want you to teach what is good, to disciple your children, to edify the women and men in your parishes and the larger church, to talk to your male coworkers about Christ, to teach them about Christ. We need you. You are invaluable to the Lord and to his church. We'll close here in verse 15 because this is a very confusing verse. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And we could talk about this for the rest of the day, this verse. And there are many ways that we could go. Many wise people have written about this There were two interpretations that I found at all compelling, but I land on this one in particular. Because where we're ending this is once again in a call to trust. According to Genesis, childbearing was part of the glorified order. It was part of God's good design. But when the fall occurred, childbearing became a curse because it involved pain. Childbearing post-fall became a sign of our distrust. It became a sign of the curse. It became a sign of what's broken in our world. So the words saved through childbearing are crucial in the overall understanding because we have to say first that childbearing is not salvific. It doesn't mean that if you have a child that you're saved. 
Jesus is the one who saves you. I want to make that very clear. But the word through here, the word through, is the same in two other scriptures, in 1 Corinthians 3 and in Hebrews 5. The first in 1 Corinthians mentions someone who will be saved, but only as through fire. And the second says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered and was made perfect by it. So in my brief study, here's what I'm encouraging us to do and where I'm encouraging us to land. Childbearing is representative of the curse that we were left with after the fall. It's, the word is childbearing, but it speaks to all the brokenness that we know. Its shadow is seen in all of the brokenness that we know. And every man and woman in the world has experienced this. But for those of us in Christ, Paul is saying, the curse refines us and we're saved through it. For those of us outside of Christ, the curse is our end because the brokenness of life becomes too much. We can't find who to trust. Life is too hard, it's too painful, it's too sad. And we're condemned in that curse. Our refinement is contingent on one thing that we trust to the end. And that is the work of God by his spirit as the work of Jesus is applied daily to our souls. It's not something that we do ourselves. It's a work of God that we submit to and plead for. Sojourn Christ is the source of eternal salvation to all who trust him. And as we live as a household of God, this gospel identity founded on grace, that we trust that, that that is our reality, that that is who you are in Christ, and that there is grace for us. There is grace for you. We can take great trust in him. I'm thinking of Abby's face again. Daddy, I don't know which way is up, but I trust you. Sojourn, trust him. Let's trust him together. Men and women of Sojourn, walk in the self-control and modesty that Christ gives you by his spirit. Rest and remember that he delights in you. If you ever wonder how he feels about you, I want you to find a dad in this, in this body. I want you to find a dad that's looking at his child. Look at his face. That is how he looks at you in Christ. There is nothing left to prove through our arguments or our image. Everything has been proven through Christ in his resurrection. There is your righteousness. There is your life. There is peace. There is identity. It is him. Maybe there are a few of you who don't know that he's trustworthy, and I would just say this. Will you step into life with us and keep asking questions? Will you live with us? We would love to be a family to you. It would be an honor to live with you. Sojourn, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Let me pray for us.